You're listening to WXOJLP Northampton, and this is Care Talk with Quick and Quack, coming to you from our beautiful penthouse studio in Florence, Massachusetts. This is Doctors Evan Benjamin and Bill Cutler talking to you about health and health care. We'll be talking to each other with guests, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at caretalk at valleyfreeradio.org. We'd love to hear your stories about health and navigating the healthcare system. All right, Bill, we are back for another exciting show. Good to see you again. Uh, what do we have up today, Bill? Oh, we've got a great show coming up today, Evan. Uh, we are going to, at long last, uh, review some recommendations for fixing our healthcare system. We've we're talked we're going to fix it, Bill. Well, we're going to. Fi- well, this is it. You know, we've been talking, we've been complaining, we've been, you know, about about problems with the system. Today, we're going to just set to the hard work of of, of straightening things out. And uh, but we also are going to be hearing from some listeners. We've got some uh, email communications. We've got uh, both <laughs> listeners have emailed us. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, both. And 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 we've got some. Uh, we've got a fascinating clinical scenario. It involves uh, a, a fox, a dog, a raisin bagel. I, I just can't wait wow. to share this with you. It's That's a, fantastic. <laughs> and I heard somebody won our puzzler. Wow. That means yeah. another person was listening. Does, does that mean we have to come up with with another one of these puzzlers? I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how, if time allows. We will see. All right. All right. Looking forward to this show. All right. All right, Evan. So we've been talking a lot in this show about problems with the healthcare system, and uh, today, all that negative talk that we've been having, we're going to have a little positive talk here because an anonymous source has leaked to me uh, a an interesting document <laughs> with uh, several PowerPoint slides of Professor Evan Benjamin basically solving the problems of the healthcare system. And I can't believe that we've been sitting here talking about these problems all this time. And and you've got the answer <laughs> right there in your pocket. Did this so, come from uh, <laughs> WikiLeaks? Where'd you get this? <laughs> I, I can't reveal my sources, but I do have I do have this PowerPoint presentation here. And and uh, I'm gonna have you like come on here for a bit and, uh, and, and inform us a little bit about this. So I'm opening up the slide deck here, and I'm sorry that I can't share this with our listeners. But It's okay. I'm, have, I'm a little embarrassed here, Bill. But uh, we, you know. we have lesson number one, ensure universal coverage. So take it away. Well, you know, Bill, we've been talking for, you know, since we started this show of the challenges of the U.S. healthcare system. And I think first and foremost, uh, I think we all recognize the fact that the United States is the richest country in the world, perhaps in the history of the world, and we don't provide health insurance and therefore health care 
for all of our citizens. Right right here on the slide, it says still 10% of U.S. citizens are uninsured. So we did a big step 12 years ago with the Affordable Care Act. We went from about 20% uninsured, but we still have about 10% uh, uninsured. So how how can we get there? All right, how are we going to do that? So should I be going to slide number two here? No, 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 no. let's let's stay here. So because this this is complicated. I think, you know, every political season you hear us you know, arguing over, can we get to universal health care? Now, first of all, let's distinguish between universal coverage and what the, the I think some of the the critics call, oh, that that's socialized medicine. All right, this is not socialized medicine. In fact, some of the more conservative health systems in the world, I'm thinking Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands, they have universal coverage, but the health Insurance is really administered by private insurance companies. They're so it's not the government that's that that's. It's, uh, it's not the government. There is some government funding which channels into private insurance, but primarily it's basically saying, you, in, in the Netherlands and uh, and in Germany, money comes from uh, taxes and from employers. The way right now employers you know pay for premiums for people, except it puts it into a universal system that's administered by private. So. Socialized medicine, this is not. True socialized medicine, you know, the best example in the world is the UK, where the government's a single payer, and they employ the doctors, and they also own the hospitals. So so nobody's getting employer covered, uh, employer paid health insurance in the UK. Exactly. It's all it's all true socialized health care. Okay. So I think we in the United States, we can get to universal coverage given the model that we currently have. We don't need to have a revolution. We need just to continue this sort of evolution. All right. And to do so, you know, we already have, we have Medicare and Medicaid, right? Yep. Medicare supports the elderly and disabled, and Medicaid supports the the, the poor and giving them insurance coverage. Um, And then we have employer-based private insurance. So to get to universal coverage, let's think of our options. We can expand Medicaid, right? We can change the income limits so more people uh, can actually access Medicaid. This was a recommendation from the Affordable Care Act. Right, so this is what's happened in many states, but but there are some states where it's become a very political issue and uh, people look at it as a, a step towards socialized medicine and they, they yes. for a variety of reasons, uh, those those governors and, and state legislatures don't want this to happen. Yeah, there's still about 10 states that have not accepted the, the additional funding and to, uh, to expand Medicaid. So I think this is a critical part. For us to get to universal, we could really work with these states and perhaps through policy, through some bribery, I don't know, you tell me, how do we get uh, Republican governors in states like Mississippi and Alabama to accept uh, the the funding and to expand Medicaid to give health insurance to more of their citizens, but that's certainly one way to, for us to take a big step towards universal health care. The second is, you know, we in uh, Obamacare we created exchanges, and these are private insurance companies that give uh, insurance to people who are not employed. They they perhaps they're an independent contractor. They're unemployed, or just they—they're in a job that doesn't provide insurance, and they make more than what would be eligible for Medicaid. They fall into this category of 
private insurance exchanges. Now these these insurance exchanges they're they're uh, done state by state as well, right? That's right. They're state by state. They're they're usually the insurance companies within that state that ad are administering them. They do come with a subsidy. So depending, it's a sliding scale subsidy. Uh, depending on where you are, you can get more or less a subsidy from the government. So a second way that we can help to expand coverage to get to universal care is to use the exchanges for perhaps change some of the income eligibility so more people can get on these exchanges. Okay, so that'll to close the gap down a bit. And uh, Are there further steps we need to take beyond that? Yeah, so the first I said was uh, is trying to make sure we expand Medicaid yeah. uh, and the incomes there to expand the exchanges and change some of the income levels. The third is, you know, we have Medicare, and Medicare has been really successful, very efficient, uh, and we could begin to perhaps lower the age of Medicare eligibility so more people who fall through the cracks between, say, the ages of 60 or 55 and 65, they could also get uh, universal health coverage. So that would be the third way is expanding uh, Medicare by lowering age eligibility. All right. Well, I do recall from recent years a lot of talk about Medicare for all, uh, but maybe that's something we should talk about at a different time. Yeah, well, I think Medicare for All is okay, but it, that's more of the revolution, right? And here we're talking about evolution, taking what we have and just expanding each area so more people are covered, getting us closer, rather than Medicare for All would be a big deal. We'd have to eliminate the insurance companies. That's a revolution, and I'm not sure we're ready. So my solution is just keep iterating and, and expanding the number of people who are insured. Yeah, well, I will just say, though, that, that even... I, in in the Medicare age group, the insurance companies still have a role there, uh, but it would cer it's certainly less of a role than they have. Uh, you know, the insur uh, you know, since since turning sixty five, my insurance company does a little bit less for me than it used to do. That's right. That's right. Okay, so that's I think lesson number one. Let's get to universal uh, health insurance coverage. All right, all right. That's that's number one. So on, no on number two here, I see something about children. Covering children. Yeah, to me, this is a no-brainer. Uh, again, Bill, the richest country in the world, and we still have children who don't have health insurance. So, you know, on, from either side of the aisle, you're, if you're right or you're left, you know, I can understand th the right really, you know, still comes back to this idea of a, uh, you know, America is about pull, up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. We don't want any freeloaders. You know, so they don't want entitlements but here we're talking about children w the richest country in the world should be able to insure all of its children so we shouldn't have our children pulling up their bootstraps <laughs> exactly uh you know so just a couple models this is done uh norway you know they have really prioritized that all children have health insurance coverage uh in the netherlands a hundred percent if you're less than 18 uh, there, there's a separate health insurance. And so we could do this. We could create, a, it could be part of our public health system. We have something called CHIP already. CHIP is for lower income families. Uh, sometimes a CHIP will cover uh, even beyond the Medicaid income limits. So it, it does allow more people than just Medicaid. CHIP is the, the children's health insurance program. Uh, but, you know, we could make this universal, regardless if you're whatever family is uh, has for insurance, every child could be enrolled in CHIP automatically 
And then, of course, you could purchase private insurance on top of it uh, if you would like to do that or if that's available. But why not prioritize health insurance for all of our children? Sounds like a good plan. You know, I guess in some ways, that I, it, it sort of it, at the other end of the age spectrum we were talking about, we've got Medicare for people 65 and over and, and for those with, with uh, certain disabilities. But uh, we talked about possibly expanding that coverage to a little bit younger ages. And now we're talking about the other end of the age spectrum of trying to bring coverage up to uh, that age yeah. of 18. Yep. Exactly. So, all right. So that's number, that was number two. So the first was universal, get to universal health coverage. The second was let's insure all children. All right. So let's go to number three. This one says we're going to simplify the American health care system. I know I'm an optimist Whoa. here, Bill. I'm an optimist, <laughs> but let me tell you, <laughs> complexity is our enemy, and we have a healthcare system which is incredibly complex. You know, there are estimates that you know the about there's about four trillion dollars a year spent on healthcare in the United States. There's some estimates that around 250 billion just is waste from just from administrative complexity. Right, the craziness of the system that we have, uh, the way we get insurance, uh, the the complexities of the private insurance system, um, you know, the insurance design. You know, anyone who has private insurance knows, you know, there's copays, there's deductibles, there's coinsurance, there's maximums. You know, it's so complex, and throw that, you know, complexity in for the providers that also have to deal with this. Uh, and so the way th the relationship between insurance providers and doctors and hospitals, so much administrative complexity. So my number three recommendation is how do we simplify is to simplify the system. One idea which has been tossed about, uh, others have proposed this, is, you know, we have Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, and then private insurance. J let's just simplify this. Let's have two systems. Let's have a public health insurance system and let's have a private health insurance system. And what we pile everything together in the public. If you're Medicare, if you're Medicaid, if you're CHIP, that's our public system. And then we have our private system. Our we continue the employer-based system. But let's start simplifying this so we take away some of that administrative burden. So, so right now we have multiple different uh, public uh, systems is that what is that what you're saying here that 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 it, it's not all organized under one umbrella it's very confusing and this was part of the compromise when Medicare was uh, passed in 1965 we have a federal system that runs Medicare uh, and that's for the elderly and then the states run Medicaid and that's for the poor uh, so you know it's very complex uh, and it's and there's also big disparities in the, the services that are available so I'd like to see us just simplify the approach we have a public health care insurance system and we have a private health care insurance system so imagining that that simplification process is probably in and of itself going to be pretty complex because we you know, how, how, do, how do you even start to do that? Uh, I mean, is this an act of Congress or? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, afraid I'm afraid this is a tough one. And, and I think, uh, you know, the policy uh, wonks would need to weigh in here on, you know, is this feasible? Uh, a lot of uh, folks have talked about this. 
but it probably would need to be a congressional act to be able to coalesce to bring together Medicare and Medicaid. It's in more of an administrative. It's not changing the dollars. That would be the same. So that's perhaps easier for Congress to grapple with. But it's really changing the complexity and trying to simplify the administration. All right. So I think that's that's the first three, right? Uh -huh. uh, you know, we can we we need to ensure universal coverage. Let's cover all of our children, and then you know, let's work on just simplifying the the complex uh, healthcare system. Yeah. Now you also have in here simplifying how we get insurance. Uh, so, I mean, that is complicated now. You know, we we've heard uh, um, from uh, from listeners about the complexities of Medicare and. Uh, you know that uh, when you change employers, your your health insurance can change, and then there are options to go, uh, you know, buy buy insurance through exchanges. So this is all, and a lot of that comes right out of Obamacare, doesn't it? To you know, the, these sort of complex choices of trying to fill in gaps here and fill in gaps there. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is you know we have all these private insurance options, uh, and then if you're eligible, there's the public health insurance. So. You know, let's simplify the, what are the offerings. But then I think another opportunity, and I, th I would throw this lesson under the simplification, is you know, can we standardize the benefit design so that the insurance benefit, wherever you go, if you're uh, if you, private insurance, if you're employed on the exchanges or through the public model, the benefit's the same, right? It covers primary care, it covers specialty care, it covers hospital care, it covers uh, mental health. The benefits are always the same. What differs is, and this is where insurance companies could market themselves, you know, we're a private market, they could compete on premium, what's the cost of their insurance. If they're really efficient, they could have low premiums and they'll get more customers. And they can market their customer service. But they can't change the benefits, right? That should be standardized. Again, we need uh, you know, a government approach to say, if you're an insurance company in this country, these are the benefits, and you can compete on service and your premium costs, but if you're gonna offer health insurance, this is what it has to provide. That would be a revolution, I think, th right there. It's, yeah. a it's, a revo it's somewhere between evolution and revolution, yes. Yeah. So, um, so Bill, tell you what, uh, we've been chatting here for a little bit. Let's let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll do uh, a few more lessons and recommendations. All righty. We traveled to Slamback in 1962. We played the places that were home. We drove to Memphis, we rocked the set We walked the streets at night and smoked a cigarette here in America Here in America There was so much I didn't know About the way that life could go Here in America Down the block I saw the people stop and stare You did your best to make a Yankee boy aware I never thought about the color of your skin 
but when you think about what an emergency room has, is they're fantastic places. They've got, you know, trauma nurses available. They've got MRIs. They've got CAT scans. They've got labs, uh, lab tests immediately available. They've got intravenous fluids that they can give. They've got an intensive care unit upstairs where they can send the person who's acutely ill. They also have a human brain in there, you know, to work something. But but usually you don't get to the human brain until after you sat in the waiting room for a few hours, depending on what your situation is. If you need the other services, you'll get in there. But but uh, uh, a clinical situation like this could well be still sitting in the waiting room. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's unfortunate that the recommendation here was go to the emergency room. I think, you know, a human brain here could have thought through uh, and really described what they thought the, the risks were. Uh, if, in fact, you know, the recommendation is to be on the safe side and get a, a rabies series, uh, that would be one thing to do. That can actually be arranged in most uh, most practices uh, or urgent care centers, places where they're not as crazy. So I think, you know, the big question is, is could this been handled uh, over the phone? Could this been handled in primary care or in urgent care? Uh, or is this necessary to go to the emergency department? Right, right. And, you know, I'll, full disclosure here is, you know, the truth is, is I, I actually know Anonymous. And, and she so they're not anonymous. <laughs> not anonymous to me. And, and she did uh, contact me saying, like, do I, do I really need to go? Do you think I really need to go to the emergency room for this? And we talked it out, and, and we, we reviewed the clinical information in up-to-date. And actually, I came across something very interesting there, which is that they did a study uh, several years back of, of uh, evaluations in the emergency department of bites. And this was sort of a, a retrospective analysis. They looked back at the clinical chart and said, um, you know, how many of these people who came in with a, a clinical suspicion were actually treated with rabies prophylaxis? And, and the answer is, is that, that uh, only about 7% of people who came to the emergency department with some kind of a question of rabies ended up getting treatment. And of those 7%, who did, and this was, you know, it was, they looked at something like, I don't know, somewhere on the range of 2,000 cases, so maybe it was about 140 or something that, that got treated. They found that 40% of those who got treated, you know, when looked at by experts afterwards, that it was unnecessary yeah. prophylaxis. Yeah. So, so there's, there's a lot of over-treatment that, that happens in, you know, in that situation, and, and our, I think that's an, a, a uniquely American thing, that, that our system is... Uh, geared towards towards over treatment. Yeah, so I think I think the bottom line here. Uh, first of all, big thanks to anonymous or not anonymous uh, for for this you know, letter. I think the big issue here is uh, let's get a brain involved. Uh, to make the recommendations on what, whether to treat or not. And we could probably do that without activating the emergency uh, management system. Yeah, and I, and I will also just say that, you know, we love getting, getting emails like this. Um, it, it's a lucky thing that, that you know, you, you have to realize the, the realities of, of, of us addressing these questions on the air is that was, were this truly a clinical situation with rabies, you know, by the time our, 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 uh, uh, our telecommunications expert, Don Anser, uh, had you know reviewed the email and or passed it along to us? Uh, uh, it would be weeks later. It, it could be weeks later, and yeah. So so <laughs> hopefully anonymous is is out there listening now and uh, happily healthy. All right, Bill. Let's uh, let's move on. Thank uh, you. All right. Who let the dogs out? 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 Who let the dogs out?
everybody having a ball. And tell the fellas start the name calling. And the girls respond to the call. I hear a boom and shout out. Who let the dogs All right, Bill. That was the Baja Men with Who Let the Dogs Out? Just to follow up our rabies conversation. <laughs> that was that was a good choice, Evan. Thanks. So now that we've settled that clinical issue, let's get back to the important business of uh, saving the U.S. healthcare system and straightening things out here. So I think we've heard a little bit about uh, how to get universal coverage, get children covered, try to simplify the whole aspect of getting health insurance. In lesson number four on this slide deck here, we start talking about primary care. Well, that's right, Bill. So lesson number four is how do we enhance primary care? How do we reimburse primary care physicians uh, in, in better ways so that we actually encourage uh, people to go into primary care? And then how do we improve uh, the system so that primary care can actually be the, the cornerstone of a universal health in, uh, program. Sounds fantastic. How do we do it? Well, first of all, li little background. You know, about two thirds of American physicians are uh, are specialists. Uh, that's just been the way of the past uh, number of years. Uh, people come out of medical school. They have a lot of debts. Uh, they see the path uh, to being a specialist, which is uh, more highly reimbursed than primary care, and they choose to go into specialty care. So one of the things we need to do is to increase the number of graduates of, of medical schools going into primary care. Great idea. So, Well, so one is how do we increase, you know, we have to make a recommendation to increase reimbursement change the current reimbursement system, which was set up uh, you know, over 30 years ago now, which really uh, rewarded specialists and rewarded procedures rather than primary care, you know, rewarding coordination uh, and cognitive care. So I, I have a question here because, you know, setting up a reimbursement system, you know, how did our current reimbursement system get set up in the first place? You know, th you know that because if we're going to change it, I guess we need to sort of analyze the present state. Yeah, so we, you know, we created this system, which was called, you know, based on what we call relative value units. This gets very wonky very quickly. I won't go into the full history, but <clears throat> policy experts uh, sat down with advisors from physicians, the American Medical Association, and honestly, the specialists had, uh, I think, had their finger on the scales here a little bit when this system was created. They had a lot of seats at the table, I guess, huh? I had a few more seats at the table, uh, really arguing for the fact that procedures uh, are more complicated uh, and they actually require higher reimbursement. So specialties, particularly things like radiology, anesthesia, were starting to get and began and have continued to be more highly reimbursed than cognitive specialties like primary care or even things like infectious disease. So this, this reimbursement system, um, 
as I recall, it, it was set up initially with, with Medicare payments, right? Yeah, and it quickly spread. So Medicare, as usually what happens in this country from a policy perspective is things start with Medicare. If something is approved, for instance, uh, by Medicare as a, a treatment, then usually the private uh, employed based uh, insurance programs will follow suit. And, and for something to get approved by Medicare, this is... This doesn't require an act of Congress, right? There, there are, there's, or that's there right. Are, that's right. This, these are done through uh, Medicare committees, which have a lot of, you know, input and public input uh, to make those recommendations. So, you know, likely a change in the reimbursement system could be a little simpler than an act of Congress. So, so these these committees could get together and decide to change the way Medicare reimburses, and then once Medicare reimbursement is changed that would spread to the rest of the uh, payment system that that's right I think I think so that's a possibility so could we get more payments for uh, primary care reimburse primary care physicians uh, at higher levels but there's another thing I think we could think about Bill is a way to uh, enhance primary care as well not only improving the reimbursement but if we paid doctors differently so this gets into, right now we pay mostly on what's called a fee-for-service system, which means uh, physicians are paid when they actually see a patient uh, perform a service. It could be a visit, it could be a procedure, and then they get paid. So the more services they provide, the more they can get paid. That system, fee-for-service, incentivizes really doing more as opposed to all other alternative payment mechanisms that would support better coordination of care, better population health. You, If you're paid to take care of a panel of patients, let's say, as a primary care doctor, and you're paid a salary, so you, you get your salary, and if you care for your population well, you keep them out of the hospital, you coordinate their care, you can actually get extra payments as well. So that's called paying for value rather than paying for volume. Well, this is interesting because if we look back at this uh, this case, clinical case that we were just discussing with the raisin bagel and the fox, um, you know, this was a situation that that clinically could well be handled by a telephone visit, which gets very little, if any, reimbursement for the office. And 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 if you're trying to run a practice, whether you're the administrator or or a private care physician trying to run a practice and make ends meet. You got to think about that. I'm not, you know, uh, this is going to take a bunch of time to to figure this out, and you know, I may not be totally, uh, you know, up to date at the moment on on rabies, but I can look it up and I can spend some time with the situation, really get all the details. But I'm going to get minimal, if any, reimbursement for doing that. Uh, and you know, I could bring the patient in. It's probably not clinically necessary to actually even see this. The the wound happened a few days ago. It's a minor wound. Doesn't really need emergency care, or I can just have whoever the clinical person in the office is say, eh, you just better go to the ER, let them, let yes. them check it out, and where, where the cost is astronomically exactly. higher. And so we want to understand waste in our system. That's a classic example. So if we paid differently, if we paid physicians to care for a population, to get reimbursed for that phone call for managing that patient, that one, the patient would get better care, 
and we would waste less. That patient would not be going to the emergency room. So I think lesson four is enhancing and reimbursing uh, primary care differently. Uh, Bill, just one thing before we go on to the next lesson, you know, just so our listeners know, there's been a lot of research on primary care. And what we've learned is that a good, strong primary care system overall really enhances the performance of the health system. It uh, improves chronic care management. It's associated with lower costs overall. Uh, if we look at other systems in, in Western Europe that have strong primary care, their costs are lower because of the better primary care system. So we know primary care should be the cornerstone of a health system, but we need to enhance it and reimburse it differently. Well, I guess that brings us to lesson five, which talks about better management of chronic and mental health conditions. Yes. So primary care is a big part of that. I think this lesson five is how do we, how do we coordinate care and particularly around chronic care? Um, and so to me, the, the operative word here is coordination. Uh, how do we create uh, not just a, a primary care doctor seeing a patient, referring to a specialist, that specialist will then manage things, not really communicate back to primary care. The specialist may even refer the patient to another specialist. Uh, and pretty soon you're in this mess of poor coordination and high costs. So could chronic illness management be practiced differently? And the answer is yes. And there've been some examples of this. Uh, to actually create a multidisciplinary teams to coordinate the care uh, where it's not just a physician, but it's a team. There's, there are nurses, there are care managers, there are navigators uh, that really can do proactive outreach. See, how do you take care of patients? It's the physician needs to get involved, but it's really others that can really be helping to coordinate the care. It's need, it needs teamwork to do that. So, you know, we talked um, in the past about the Affordable Care Act and accountable care organizations, which were a part of that. And and so my understanding, it, where, where do things stand with that now? Are accountable care organizations, is that, is that a reality? Is, it, is well, that, that, that mm. I think that, that, that is meant to address some of these issues of chronic illness management yeah. and reimbursing for that. So, yeah. So that was legislated. Where do, where do things stand? Is it <laughs> uh, all, always the keen observer, Bill. You know, you're right. Uh, ACOs, Accountable Care Organizations, was one of those recommendations from the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, to promote better coordination of care. Um, I would say the jury is still out if ACOs actually have achieved uh, what was initially uh, sought. Uh, you know, ACOs were the idea was physicians would come together in large groups. They would receive a uh, large population-based payment, uh, and they would be rewarded for better coordinated care, keeping patients out of the emergency room, out of the hospital, uh, in home, and, and with a with a much more efficient and coordinated system. So, so, so this is sort of a, a negotiated system that would happen where you have a group of practitioners who get together and and perhaps negotiate with a uh, with an insurance entity and say, okay, we will become an accountable care organization, and, and we'd like you to reimburse us yes. for this. And 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 then and then those two parties have to negotiate 
how how payment is going to work on that is that is that where things stand now that's it and it, it started with medicare so the, the we have what's called now the in, a medicare innovation center cmmi and it started creating these contracts first uh, and now some uh, private insurance companies have also built contracts oh, so that they can contract with accountable care organizations to reward them for better coordination of care okay and so so those are are happening in practice right now and 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 there i would say we're still experimenting to get that right but the idea is we have to improve our chronic illness management and that's one path but uh, before but bill so lesson five was two things it was better management of chronic conditions and it was also better mental health management and i think you know i think the lesson for me here is we've seen better ways to manage uh, mental health and behavioral health. Uh, some of the examples we've seen is when uh, behavioral health is embedded into primary care. That's been a nice model uh, to uh, where primary care is screening and then referring right within their practice to behavioral health providers. Uh, so I think there are other ways that this can happen, but a strong recommendation is we need uh, better behavioral health in our health system. And that's a big thing. Yeah, that 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 sounds good. So, should we move on to? Uh, yeah, let, let's quick quickly finish up these uh, these recommendations. All I right. think. So, lesson six: we're talking about regulating drug prices. There's a big issue. Big issue. Uh, you know, I think without getting into too much of the policy, it's it's a lesson because we've seen other uh, countries uh, really do a better job at this. Is trying to uh, decrease uh, drug prices. I think our, our listeners should know that the United States really has lagged behind. We do not uh, negotiate with pharmaceutical companies uh, as a rule. It's not been done. Uh, Medicare does not do this. Recently, uh, that has changed as an experiment. We have a few, a few drugs every year or something like that. Yeah, there's now 10. There's yeah. now 10 drugs which have been allowed to actually negotiate the price over. Uh, and so I think a recommendation is you know, this is nonsense. We need to begin to have the ability to regulate uh, drug prices. Uh, in England, there's an organization called uh, NICE. Uh, it's the uh, National uh, Clinical Effectiveness Institute. And what they do there is they look at a drug and they say, how effective is this? And based on its effectiveness, they determine what the price should be. How logical. So, so this sounds incredibly simple because all, really all we need is for Congress to get together and set aside the fact that drug companies have, mo have financed their elections uh, and, <laughs> and, and just set that to the side, get together and say we're going to like bring some logic into the healthcare system and, and, and change the, the rules around this. Right. So, it's simple, Bill. Simple. We'll, we'll do that next week. Okay. okay. Let's go to lesson seven. Ne lesson seven is really getting into other the other waste. We talked about earlier administrative complexity. Lesson seven is really to fix uh, the other causes of waste, uh, particularly what I call uh, overuse. Uh, overuse is when uh, physicians really, because of a fee-for-service model, are doing more that really isn't necessarily helping the patient. Uh, it's been estimated that overtreatment adds about $75 billion uh, to our healthcare system, uh, and we could actually 
do this through uh, improving the value uh, of care that patients receive, uh, working with physicians to having different payment models, like we talked about with the ACO, to really move away from overuse and really to have physicians uh, use testing and treatments that really are better value to the patient. Absolutely, you know, I mean, just, you know, it's not, it's not $75 billion or $100 billion, but, you know, had our an anonymous raisin bagel loving dog owner gone to the emergency department and gotten <laughs> treated with unnecessary rabies prophylaxis, I think the cost of that is about $7,000, you know, so. Over treatment. Uh, uh, over treatment, okay. Um, and what's uh, the, the last lesson, Bill? Oh my gosh, last lesson. This one's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> it's investing in improving the social drivers of health. Um, so quick background, the United States, uh, what we you know invests uh, very poorly in these what we call social determinants of health. They're now using the term social drivers of health. These are uh, the, the other aspects of our uh, society that influence health, such as uh, food insecurity and housing and uh, what uh, safety is like in a neighborhood and uh, daycare. All right, all right. So, Evan, I I'm going to cut you off here for a second. I think we're going to take a little break because we actually have some uh, stuff in our email inbox, which, which, which goes to this issue. So I think that we should... Take a little break, come back, look at our email, and then talk a little bit more about social determinants of, uh, of health in this country. I think that's great. But, Bill, th a lot, thank you for finding the, the slide deck uh, that was leaked. If, if I hadn't come across that, we, we might have suffered on with, with, with our current health care system for, for who knows how long. For, yeah, so we've, <laughs> we've got eight lessons, at least, that people can, uh, can think about. All right.
right, Bill, that was The Grateful Dead with U.S. Blues as we're fixing the U.S. healthcare system. All right. Well, we're going to take a small detour here from fixing the U.S. healthcare system to, to get a little input from one of our listeners. Uh, it's actually a loyal listener, Mother Mallard. You may recall that, that uh, Mother Mallard uh, sent us an email a little while back about the ending of the child care tax credit and how that uh, would have a negative impact on the social impact for children in our country and potentially health care. And, and Mother, uh, Mother Mallory comes back with um, some more thoughts along those lines, which I think we should air at this point because we've actually been sitting on this email for a little while. Hey, Quackers. I now might qualify as your biggest fan having streamed all of your episodes to date. You guys are naturals on the air and your discussions are scintillating. Scintillating, that's great. I'm telling all my friends to listen in. That's wonderful. Uh, how complicated our healthcare system is, and thank you for working to explain it. Keep it up, and thanks for taking my question. Here is a comment regarding your, your third show. In that show, you talk about how in the U.S. healthcare system, we pay a huge amount, and our outcomes are not that great. By comparison, and this was a really interesting discussion, he says, or she says, Costa Rica pays less than 10% per capita and has a higher life expectancy. It's worth noting that that the it's worth noting though that our life expectancy varies tremendously by class, race, income and zip code. We live in two different Americas and perhaps more than two Americas when it comes to health care. When it comes to health care, access and the social determinants that affect our health and outcomes. According to this chart, and he sends a, a link to that of the Equality of Opportunity Project. The richest American men live 15 years longer than the poorest men, while the richest American women live 10 years longer than the poorest women. Fondly, Mother Mallard. So there are some interesting comments for us to digest. Yeah, th well, thank you, Mother Mallard. And uh, from, uh, from Quick and Quack, uh, th you know, one of the things in our uh, uh, Today, we talked a little bit about a number of recommendations. The last recommendation, Bill, of course, was how can we invest more in the social drivers of health? Everything that Mother Mallard is talking about, you know, to me, yes, we need more. But as you know, we're a very political country. Asking for more money is not going to get us more money. Right. So I have a solution. Ah, excellent. Please do share. We are the richest country in the world and we spend right now on healthcare delivery not on social care on healthcare delivery 18% of our gdp which is nearly 1 in 5 dollars in our economy is going to healthcare over 4 trillion dollars we've talked about on this show already that probably about 25% of that 4 trillion is waste so we have the money Right. Well, well and, and, and as Mother Mallard points out here, you know, we spend this money for health care to try to improve the health and life expectancy of our population. And yet, when you just look at simply the income of people, when the income is lower, the, the, the life expectancy is lower, and all this particular study didn't address it, presumably the overall health of that population is lower. That's, that's right. You know, race and socioeconomics in this country can actually predict who has better better outcomes. And yet, overall, you know, our life expectancy is is low and actually getting lower. You know, we talked about Costa Rica, 
you live longer in Costa Rica than you, you do in the United States. A lot of this, we could do a better job by investing more in the social drivers of health. So my solution. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. Quack. <laughs> Just remember, you're quack. I'm quick. Uh, if we could improve and remove the waste from our healthcare system, we could move that money from our healthcare delivery system into the social care system. Most European countries, if you look at what they spend on social care and on health care, the, the sum is about the same of what we spend as a percent of GDP. So we have the money, we spend the same, but we spend more of it on health care than on social care, and they spend more on social care than on health care, and as a result, they get better outcomes. That sounds incredibly simple. So again, all we need is for those members of Congress who are getting their elections paid for by the uh, uh, by by various aspects of the healthcare system to shift gears and uh, and 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 direct funds toward social impact programs rather than than healthcare. Is well, that no, or, but is I think no. We I think as a physician uh, and as someone who's been working in policy for many years. I think we have to do it first. I think the healthcare system needs to show we can decrease spending in healthcare. We can improve care coordination. We can re reduce the waste that we have in our health system. I think we need to have Congress involved to change some policy to help us. But the idea is if we can reduce waste, and there are lots of things we can do as physicians, as healthcare leaders, as insurance leaders, we can reduce that waste. That money now becomes available to spend on social care. So the government needs to get involved in seeing that, wow, we're, we're freeing up this money now. How do we move it? That's the most complicated. How do we move it into the social care system? Yeah, I don't really have a simple answer for how we, 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 we bring that shift about. Uh, yeah, this is, you know, people have been thinking about this for a long time. People... Uh, Certainly uh, smarter than me and you, Bill. Smarter than Quick and Quack. But I think I think we can do it. I'm I'm an optimist that the money we spend in the healthcare system is not getting us the results we want. If we could decrease that four trillion and and begin to shift it, so could a healthcare system, for instance, if you change the way they get paid, right? If we don't pay fee for service anymore, and you go to the large health systems here in Massachusetts, uh, and you say what we're going to pay you for health right which means health of everyone in your community all of a sudden you know getting people's giving them a home for the homeless will actually decrease health care costs right so the health system can suddenly recognize that wow if we're really paid for health and not just for volume to do procedures then really what we need is to maybe we should need to create a housing program to get a lot of our patients who are homeless who come to see us give them a home and their health will get better. So could we change the way the health systems are paid to incentivize them to begin to invest in the social drivers of health? You know, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting. O on one level, it's just incredibly simple. And on other levels, it's, it's just so complicated and complex of how to go about doing that. You know, it's a, it's a real puzzler, I'd say. To oh, you know, Bill, before we go, I thank you for reminding me. We had a winner from last week's puzzler. Uh, you know, we the puzzle, if you recall, was you're locked in a doctor's office 
The only thing that's in there is a uh, a table and a mirror. And how can you get out? Yeah, unfortunately, I do actually totally recall that. So, <laughs> so, so. <laughs> All right. Well, so we did get uh, Lynn from uh, Hartford uh, called in and told us that if you you first you look at the mirror and you see what you saw. See what and, I saw. And you yeah. saw the table. Saw the table. And you cut the table, two halves make a hole, and you climb out the hole. Brilliant. Get out of the doctor's but, office. But, you know, you know. actually, I think that, that that puzzler and that solution, you know, we could probably just translate that to our healthcare system and, and, <laughs> and solve the whole thing. If we, if we could solve it that way, that, that would be beautiful. Yeah, we can yeah. climb out of the hole of the healthcare <laughs> system. All right, Phil. Well, that wraps up another fantastic episode. You've been listening to Care Talk with Quick and Quack on WXOJLP. As always, our email, caretalk at valleyfreeradio.org. You can catch our show on WXOJLP Northampton. If you're in the greater Northampton area, you can tune in on the radio at 103.3 FM. You can also find it on the web at valleyfreeradio.org. Or you can tune in to the podcast. While there are many Care Talk podcasts out there, we are the only one with Quick and Quack. This show would not be possible without the staff and facility here at WXOJLP Northampton. You can learn more about WXOJLP at valleyfreeradio.org. And please visit that donate button. We also have a very robust staff here at Care Talk with Quick and Quack who always have our back. We've got our malpractice attorney, Heidi Evidence. <laughs> we have our director of efficiency, Artie Dunn. And our audio engineer, Kent Erdat. <laughs> I love that. Uh, we have our director of telephonic complaints, Don Answer. Oh, right. And, and don't forget our czar of political correctness, Diddy Sadat. In addition, we sometimes need some clinical support here. We have a fantastic clinical consulting staff. How about our, from gastroenterology, Isabel E. Tender? Or from surgery, Anita Cut. Anita Cut. Uh, from urology, Lee King. And homeopathy, Les Ismore. That's Dr. Dr. Les Ismore. Uh, psychiatry, Freedom Mind. And our chief diagnostic consultant for those very difficult clinical situations, Hanno Idear. Thank you all for joining us once again on Care Talk with Quick and Quack. And we'll see you all and hear you all next week. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.